0: We live in a culture that is incredibly isolated. In fact, just earlier this year, the Surgeon General put out an 84-page warning that we have an epidemic of loneliness, that one in four Americans feels like they have nowhere to turn, no one to turn to in a time of need. In our rampant individualism, we have declared the self as better than anyone else, and therefore, Why do we need community? I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can do this on my own. I don't need others. I have God. It'll be just fine. Unfortunately, nothing could be further from the truth. One of the benefits of the Reformation, we just spent a few weeks talking about in a Bible study, the Reformation was this idea that there were corruptions and problems in the church, and we need to reform it and shape it into what was actually true in Scripture. And one of the good things that came from that was at the time in the 1500s, there was an idea only priests could read God's Word because only they are smart enough and only they have access to it and only they are worthy of God's word, which meant you could not experience or know God without the priest. And through the Reformation, one of the things Martin Luther said was, actually, that's completely wrong. God's word is for his people and every person should have access to it. And this is a really good thing. But now, 500 years later, coupled with the enlightenment in our pursuit of self, we have made this idea that we can find God and seek God without others. An idea that is completely not found in Scripture and was definitely not the aim of Martin Luther when he said, the priest does not control God's word. Aristotle, an old Greek philosopher, he described three different types of friendships that I find incredibly helpful. The most common and prevalent one is a friendship of utility. Essentially, somebody has something, whether that's a skill or an item or something that you need, and so you utilize your relationship with them to get that thing. And this isn't manipulative, this isn't inherently bad, it's not like you're just using people and discarding them. No, I mean, this could be a good thing. Like, I'll give you money and in exchange, you'll fix my plumbing. This is good for both of us. A friendship of utility is really common because we all need something from somebody most of the time. But a friendship of utility never really goes into any kind of meaningful, transformative relationship. But the next layer of friendship, according to Aristotle, was this idea of the friendship of entertainment. There are people that you will find great joy in being around. These are the people you really look forward to game night with. You can't wait to go out for a drink with. These are the people you really want to be around simply because when you're around them, it's easy to smile. You feel loved and everything's okay. These friendships for a long time in our culture we found in things like bowling leagues and church choirs, community groups that people participated in centered around a common interest. I really enjoy this activity. Let's go do it with others. But the biggest problem, I think, in our country is the third kind of friendship Aristotle described is lacking for most of us, and it was a friendship of virtue. Essentially, he said, there are some people we simply need something from. In fact, most people are in that category. And there are fewer people we simply like to be around because they're fun. But the fewest and the smallest community we can have are people in whom I see great virtue, characteristics and traits that when I look at them, I see who I want to become. I look at them and I don't want to emulate their life and their jobs and their houses and their stuff. No, I want to emulate their character. I want to become like them because they are a person who's living in such a way that they are desirable to be like. Most of us today in our Western culture can find friendships of utility everywhere we turn. In fact, if you pay the right price, you can buy any friendship of utility. Some of us today can find friendships of entertainment, people we simply like to be around. But very rarely are we ever encouraged Or challenged to seek out the friendship of virtue the people we want to be around because being around them makes me a better person more like Christ in every way and I think because we have forgotten to seek out that kind of friendship we've begun to lose even the friendship of entertainment see entertainment alone will never carry you through If you live your life surrounded by fun people, do you know what the problem with that is? Sometimes life isn't fun. Sometimes life is really hard. And friendships centered entirely around the fun of being together get really difficult to maintain when life gets really hard and painful. And so we have become a culture that is increasingly more and more isolated alienated from even our very neighbor who lives next door as we talk about following jesus about living in his lifestyle being a disciple of jesus one who learns to apprentice under jesus and become like him in every way you cannot do this alone you will not succeed at following jesus by yourself you need other people around you can do it with you in fact Jesus when he called his disciples he called a group of 12 who he was going to equip with a mission and a purpose to go but out of that group of 12 he had three that core group the people that he spent the most time with he invited into the inner space of his heart and his life and his hurt and his pain even on the night he was betrayed that core group of three he said come and pray with me for my heart is heavy You and I, if we're going to become like Jesus, need to be surrounded by people who we look to and say, I want to be like that. We need to be surrounded by community that strengthens and encourages us. We will not become like Christ alone. So to look at this today, we're going to actually look in the Old Testament at a story that many of you are probably familiar with, 1 Samuel chapter 18. There's a friendship here that happens to be perhaps one of the most beautiful pictures of friendship in all of Scripture, and also one of the most ugly and horrible and painful pictures of friendship. Now to set the stage here in 1 Samuel chapter 17, right before this, there's this giant named Goliath who's come against the people of Israel, and he's threatening them. And all of Israel is terrified except for one small young shepherd boy who has confidence in his God and his God's faithfulness and says, I know that my God can do this. And David goes out into battle where for all intents and purposes he was not equipped for the job at hand. And in his faith, he goes out and he conquers this giant and gives the whole army of Israel victory. Perhaps you're familiar with that story. Here's where we're going to pick up. 1 Samuel chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. This is immediately after David wins this battle. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, Saul was the king at the time. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan was the son of Saul, the one who was set to inherit the throne, the one who should rise to power next. But David had been given a promise that he would become king instead of Saul. In the eyes of the world, David and Jonathan should not have loved one another because David was going to not only take his job, David was going to take his power and his wealth and his authority, everything that his life was supposed to be shaped towards. But after this battle with Goliath, Jonathan hears David speaks, and he loves him in such a way that his soul was knit with him. Now, we live in a hyper-sexualized culture today, and sometimes people today want to read this and say this is something far deeper and more intimate and more physical than what I believe is intended there in Hebrew. This deep deep. Love that Jonathan had for David, and we see David has for Jonathan, I believe is nothing sexual, nothing, a a physical attraction. I think it is the deep sense of love you can have for a brother, of love you can have for a friend that means more to you than the world itself. And Saul took him, that is took David, that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. A covenant was an everlasting promise, one in which when you made a covenant, you would spill blood of an animal, and you would say, if I break this covenant, let the same be done unto me as this animal. Or like, if I, if I betray you, if I'm not faithful to you, if I don't care for you the way that I should, may I die a brutally terrible death. Jonathan makes his covenant, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. See so Jonathan becomes this kind of friend to David. That sees the plans God has for David's life, sees what's in store for David, and knows that for that to happen for David, Jonathan's going to have to lose it. We live in a culture sometimes that thinks if somebody else gets, then that means I can't. But for Jonathan, if David got what God had in store for him, who's good? Because God is better and knows more and will do the right thing. And so he strips of his robe, his sign of royal authority, he strips of his armor, his ability to go into battle, and he gives it to David and says, I will support whatever God is doing. It's a real love. We're going to jump forward a little bit, see what happens in between this section, of uh, chapter 18 and where we're going in chapter 19. Saul, the king, becomes incredibly jealous of David. He becomes jealous that all the people are praising David's great work and the things he's done and his success, and they're beginning to pursue David more than Saul, and Saul becomes jealous. So beginning in chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, and Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. Here's what we discover. Saul, in his jealousy, desires to kill the one who will steal from his son all of his son's future. And yet, Jonathan says, out of love for David, I will go and find out if this is true. And as we discover, Saul desires not just deeply to kill David, Saul is clearly not altogether with it. He's plagued by evil spirits from the Lord. He's plagued by all kinds of temptations and struggles. And so Saul, not just once, not just twice, but repeatedly seeks to kill David. Jonathan could have sat back and allowed David to die. For if David died, Jonathan would have taken the throne and had all the life that his father aspired for him. All the things he could have had in his own self... But Jonathan knows what is right and what is good, and Jonathan loves deeply. And out of this love for his brother, this love for his friend, out of this deep-seated love, Jonathan warns him about what is coming. We're going to jump ahead a little bit later. See, Jonathan warns him, and he escapes. And then come in verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. This guy's so desperate to kill David, he's even willing to kill him while he's on his deathbed. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Michael answered, Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? She lies. We see that she does it out of deception. She's afraid for herself. He can come up if he wants. That's fine. That's my youngest. You heard about him a few weeks ago. You'll probably hear from him a little bit more today. David could have died at Saul's hands, but Jonathan intervened. David's wife, Michal, intervenes, even though she does so out of deception and lies. And David, he flees to a man named Saul. Or Samuel. And when he flees to Samuel, Samuel is the prophet, the one who's speaking on behalf of God. And Saul gets so enraged at that David has escaped that Saul is willing to even kill Samuel so that he can get to David. God spares both Samuel and David. And then comes chapter 20, perhaps the most wonderful story of it all. In chapter 20, Jonathan again devises a plan for David. I'm going to go and test my dad and see just how far he's willing to go. And I want you to hide here in this field, and here's what I'm going to do. If my dad desires to kill you, I'll come out for target practice, I'll shoot arrows into the field, and I'll, I'll send my servant to go and get them. And if he wants to kill you, I'll yell to him, I think one went beyond you, go and get it. And that will be your cue to know that my father is seeking to kill you. So, so here's that story, chapter 20, uh, beginning in the second half of verse 13. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. This is Jonathan speaking to David. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. See, Jonathan continually comes to David's aid. Even knowing that David would be the one who takes his place. The beautiful thing is, he says to David, Look, if I'm still alive, will you remember me? Will you honor this love? Will you reciprocate later, even to my offspring and my descendants? And what we see as the story unfolds is later, when David rises to power, he has mercy upon the descendants of Jonathan, he spares them out of his love for Jonathan. And he continues to allow them into his household and to care for them and to nurture them because they are children and descendants of this man he loved so dearly. As we talk about community, why this story, I believe wholeheartedly the reason why it is so difficult for most of us to follow Jesus and to experience God's nearness and his love and his grace day in and day out is because fewer of us have been vulnerable enough to make this kind of a friend. See, friendship doesn't happen by accident. Now, sometimes we stumble our way into it, but friendships take a lot of work to maintain To create, to honor, and to serve, friendships will take everything from you. And if they're a worthy friendship, they'll restore to you even more than they took. But For most of us, the process of making good friends becomes really difficult. For most of us, we aren't really sure where to turn or how to start or what our next step is. And so we're just content showing up to work, being friendly with our coworkers, going home, closing the door, turning on the TV, and then wishing our life away. I wish it looked different. I wish I felt different. I wish I had other friends. I wish I had other people. I wish, I wish, I wish. I believe God's desire for you and me is that we would be the kind of community that loves holy. In fact, throughout the whole New Testament, time and time again, Paul, the, the apostle, and Peter repeatedly write, love one another, serve one another, be at peace with one another. And they're not talking about you, me, and the rest of the world. They're writing to Christians about our love for other Christians. You and I should be the kind of people who see who Jesus is and say, I want that. But in our culture we think I can do it alone. Do you know that every one of Jesus' disciples was sent out two by two with a partner and a pair? You know that when Paul went out, we always hear of Paul, but Paul didn't go out alone. He went out with Barnabas for a season. And then when Barnabas wanted to bring another guy named Mark along, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark, by the way, Paul and Barnabas split, but Paul doesn't go out on his own at that point. Luke and Paul traveled together. Even Paul had a partner, somebody he went with and did ministry with. Perhaps you've been in church settings Perhaps even in this church setting where you've heard a pastor, maybe even myself, say, you need to go and love and serve your neighbor, and you need to connect with them, and you need to share the gospel, and we place the onus on you. You know what? There is no you in we, but there is certainly a you in us. You are a part of who we are. We are us together have a responsibility to love our neighbors. And when we try to do it alone, it is exhausting and will burn you out. But when we try to do it together, and we commit ourselves to one another wholly, we will experience the full love of God. Now, I recently saw this really spectacular kind of cycle of friendship and of community, what it looks like. And I just want to share with you, this is kind of the process of making these friendships of virtue. It begins like this. There's this honeymoon phase. Anybody ever been there? You have a friend and everything's great. Maybe it's not just one friend. Maybe it's a Bible study. Maybe it's a church community. Maybe it's something you really find yourself, I love these people. They're so fun to be around. And this is great. But in every pursuit of friendship, there comes a time of apathy. It takes a lot of work to maintain these friendships. I could participate in this Bible study, but you know what? Netflix is calling and I'm pretty tired. I could seek to go out of my way to slow down in my life so that I have room for coffee with a friend. But man, that's just exhausting. I'm too busy, I'll do that later. There comes a time in every community, in every relationship, in every friendship, even in every marriage, of apathy. Do I really want to put in the work? And apathy always leads us to begin to notice what's wrong with that friend. Like how many of you have seen Seinfeld, right, where he's dating manhands, and all he can see is the manhands from that point forward? Or friends where you're watching, they start to point out one another's little traits that drive them nuts, and now that's all they can see the whole rest of the show? See, as you begin to get to know people a little more, to become close. Sharing a meal in a hallway is great, but that's only a starting point. What happens after that, as you get to know people through the apathy, you begin to notice, these people drive me nuts. I promise if you join a connect group, you will at some point be annoyed by the people in your connect group. And if you're in a connect group, you're like, not me. Okay, you just haven't been in it long enough, I promise. Because every one of us is sinful and sometimes annoying. And the temptation when we're in community and seeking to grow together, when we hit that place of fear, oh no, what if I become known? Or frustration, how come these people continue to suck the way they do? When we hit that point, the natural temptation is to run and break away and say, I don't actually need this anymore. In fact, I think part of the problem in the American church today, drive home today and count how many churches do you pass? Why? Because somewhere along the line, somebody said, I don't really need you. I'll do it on my own. I'll seek to do it differently. Churches have split over the color of carpet. Because that, in the grand scheme of eternity, really matters. All right? Our natural temptation when we begin to draw near to anybody is to flee. But if you push through that desire and you commit yourself, whatever the cost, to love wholly, there's a beautiful second half of this cycle. See, after we commit to continue, we begin to accept all of the flaws of other people. Not accept them as, well, they're not great now, but eventually they'll change. No, maybe they will always be a loud chewer. It's okay. You begin to just accept who they are in the moment and not a superficial acceptance that says, we agree on all things and I'll just love you anyway. No, a genuine acceptance that says who you are matters. Not for what you believe or how you live, Or all of your brokenness, you matter. And when we accept community around us, we get to move into this next phase of re-engagement. You know what? These people are not perfect. This place is not perfect, but I'm going to dive in a little deeper. I'm going to get to know them a little more. I'm going to be vulnerable enough for them to get to know that I too am not perfect and enough. And when we re-engage, we begin to experience genuinely healthy community. We begin to experience a kind of community that loves holy. A kind of community in which nothing is impossible because we together have the Lord. And out of that, the cycle begins to repeat. There's again a new season of honeymoon and then apathy, and it just continues. But you see, it's not just a circle where it keeps repeating. As we stick with it and we push through and we continue doing the hard work of loving others and becoming friends, as we continue to push in, it's less like a circle and more like a spring. We just keep going a little deeper and a little deeper every time around to the point where we truly know who someone is. And even more, they truly know us. And we can be loved even with all of our failures. And even with all of our brokenness, and even with all of our questions, and all of our continued habits that are not good, we can be loved for who we fully and truly are. It is my desire and my prayer that every one of us would have a Jonathan in our life. And sometimes the place where we find that person, that friendship of virtue, that deep and meaningful abiding relationship that changes everything, sometimes the place where we find it is by committing to become that for someone else. To seek with everything in us to love someone wholly. See, we serve a God who in himself is not alone. Even the Trinity, God three in one, is a community perfectly united together. And this God came into our world to become man so that we could in every way experience the unity and the life that he has to give. Are you lonely and tired and wondering when will this ever change? maybe today. You may not see the change today, but maybe today's the day to begin to invest in another. Someone you see and say, I want to be like that person. This person reminds me of Christ. In fact, Paul also writes elsewhere, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Perhaps today you can look to Christ who loves fully even those who were his enemy, who would try to take his place, who would try to usurp his authority, those who would seek to kill him. Perhaps today you can become that friend for another. And in that friendship, that commitment, whatever may come, perhaps you'll find the friends you're longing for too. The relationship, the unity, the togetherness. That whatever tomorrow may hold, God will be with you and for you through it all. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jonathan, this man who loved David wholly as his own soul. God, we confess that most of us do not have that person in our life. And we're certainly not that person for another. God, deep and abiding community is a lifelong pursuit, an exhausting and weary journey. But God, it is a beautiful blessing, perhaps the greatest we can have in this life. Teach us to be a people who love one another fully who push past our fear of being known, our frustrations with other sinful people like us. Teach us to love and to accept and to engage in community that can be full. In a culture of rampant individualism and extreme loneliness, would you be the one who loves us first, who reveals your goodness And your presence in all things. God we pray today not only for us as a people but for our city that you would fill this city with a genuine desire for community. We ask that churches would seek to set aside differences to serve you together as one body. God we ask that all these neighborhoods that each one of us live in would begin to see the blessing of loving your neighbor fully. May we find those in our community, in our neighborhood, who will seek to love others alongside us. God, we pray for our our leaders and the government. We ask you to give them wisdom and understanding to know who you are and what you are doing in this city. God, we pray that we would Break this cycle of loneliness, first in us and then for our neighbor. We ask all of this now and pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. As we continue our worship, we're going to continue by collecting an offering. Here in this place, we believe an offering is an opportunity to partner with God and the work that he's doing in and through this community in our community around us. And so I want to invite you, if you're somebody who has, uh, for most of this last year, been consistently giving an offering of any kind, I really strongly want to invite you, this Wednesday, please, please, please join us in here at 7 o'clock for our annual budget meeting. I promise it will be well worth your time. Here in this place, we believe that offering is a gift unto the Lord, not to get his love, but because we have it. So if you came prepared to give today and you'd like to do so with cash or check, you can do so in the black boxes as you exit later today. If you filled out one of those teal cards that says connect at the top with a way we can pray with you, a way we can connect with you, you can place those in the black box as well. And if you're somebody who calls this place home and you came prepared to give but prefer to do so online, you can do so at thepointknocks.com by clicking the little teal button in the bottom corner. Thank you. Now before we get into your questions for today, uh, real quick, now that Halloween is over, how many of you have decorated for Christmas? A couple of you. Bold move. Uh, For those of you who already have decorated, I have some great news for you. And for those of you who have not yet decorated, who are adamant like we should never decorate before Thanksgiving, I also have great news for you. Next Sunday after church, the 19th, we're going to stick around and we're going to decorate for Christmas. Yay. Now, for those of you who are like, oh, no, that's before Thanksgiving, don't worry. The following Sunday when people will see it decorated is after Thanksgiving. So please stick around next Sunday after church and help us decorate this place for Christmas. All right. Now, Jay, every week we invite questions. Last week I did not, and a couple of questions came in. One was more a personal one that I responded to uh, directly. But another one uh, was, how will people who don't have social media see the responses if they're on social media? Apparently, if you uh, Google Facebook and the Point Knox, uh, you can see things we post even if you don't have a Facebook. So there you go. Uh, The the third one that came in was about the brave soul who changed the light bulbs and the chandeliers. And yes, I watched them on the ladder, and I'm not that brave soul. So all right. Now, Jay, what questions came in today? Will you come on up here? Yes. So you're not in the shadows, but right here with me. I like to hide. All
1: right, we have a few questions. The first one, why do Lutherans not believe in the rapture, and what might the second coming of the Lord look like or be
0: like? That is a big question. The short answer is we don't believe in the rapture because it's a relatively new idea in the history of interpretation of Scripture. Uh, It only goes back about 150 years. Now, before that, there were a whole host of ideas about what the end times look like. The debate of how Jesus will return and when he'll return has been raging for 2,000 years. But specifically, the idea that Christians will avoid suffering and escape all the pain that is to come uh, dates to the mid-1800s. For most of history, one of the marks of the Christian church, the community of saints, was that we actually anticipated and celebrated Suffering. So, as Lutherans, we don't desire suffering, but we know that God is always glorified in and through it. And so, we don't think He's going to snatch us away from the suffering to come, but keep us in the midst of the suffering for the sake of those who don't yet know Him. So, oh, what do we look like? Think the end times will be like? I have no idea. Uh, Short answer to that one Jesus will come back and it will be awesome. And between now and then, we'll figure it out. All right.
1: Next question, is being in gossip a sin, even if you have nothing to do with the gossip, but your friends are in it and they tell you? I think so.
0: Yeah, probably. Uh, And that becomes really difficult to call gossip and sin out. There's a whole host of ways we categorize sin, um, and often one category of them is socially acceptable sin that we're uncomfortable with, but not uncomfortable enough to change, right? Like speeding is breaking the law, and you should probably not do that, but I think most of us do most of the time. And so I think gossip falls in the category that when we're overhearing it, we can just think, oh, that's not that big of a deal. And one of the challenges in faith is growing to the place of saying, hey, this isn't okay. And for the sake of my neighbor who's being gossiped about, I need to lovingly stop and say something. So that's a challenging thing, but I think every one of us can and should say, hey, that's not who I want to be. Let's stop that.
1: So, the next one is a comment. It says, Pastor Adam, you truly are a virtuous friend to our family. We love you and appreciate you deeper than we could ever explain. Thank you for being you. You You're a blessing.
0: Great, thanks. I love you too.
1: And last but not least, uh, where are the newlyweds that were of last week?
0: Not here. (laughs) Probably on their honeymoon. (laughs) I I don't know what their plans were for a honeymoon. So we had two weddings last weekend, one on Sunday morning, one on Saturday. Both sets of newlyweds are not here today. Uh, I know one was going to the Caribbean, and I don't remember what the other one was doing. But my guess is either they're still on a honeymoon or they're recovering from a honeymoon. So... So
1: that's everything that's text in. I actually just want to ask you a question. I was thinking about this a few minutes ago. Wonderful. Um, we always end with a benediction, right? And yeah. it's the same benediction. And I used, when Adam first started, I gave him a really hard time about forgetting the words. I did a lot. Why yeah. is it always the same one? I know there's a lot of them in Scripture, like especially in the end of Paul's letters. There was yeah. one in our Bible study this morning. Like, can you talk a little bit about why we always use that one?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. Throughout Scripture, there's several benedictions. A benediction is just a fancy word for a blessing. That's usually a blessing as a sending thing, and there's several throughout Scripture. This morning in our volunteer devotion, I read one from Hebrews, a blessing for the people. Uh, Some pastors switch what benediction they use every week, but I always use the same one for two reasons. The first is because Jay gave me so much beef about forgetting it. (laughs) But the second is I think there's real value in consistency, it gives us something to look forward to and to look back upon. And so with that same blessing every time, for those of you who here last week, you heard me say to the couple getting married, every time you hear this blessing, remember these vows, remember this moment. Now, I sat by someone's bedside as they were dying, and I shared with them the same blessing. Uh, and I said to the sister of this man who was dying, I said, every time you hear this blessing, remember God's faithfulness that he has kept your brother and that your brother is at peace. And and so I think the consistency in hearing it over and over again, in the highs like a wedding and in the lows like death, we have a a solid anchor to come back to. Um, I had the opportunity in August to go and uh, celebrate the retirement of a pastor, a friend who was a great mentor to me as a spiritual father and in some ways almost like a second father and that I lived in his basement for a year. And I went back to celebrate his retirement, and we had a whole wonderful time together. And he said, hey, come on back. We're just, the family's getting together at my house. And so I was invited to join his family, and and I just gave him the same blessing because I first started hearing it on a regular basis from him, and it had meant so much to me in my life. And that little moment of blessing of him was so special. And so I say the same one over and over again so that we have an anchor of something special to hold on to. So with that, as you go this week, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Have a good week. Oh, Uh, I I almost forgot. Hold on. Emily even put it in the notes of things to plan for today, and I forgot. Emily, the one shouting wait in the back corner. You guys probably know her. If not, she's in the denim jacket. You should see her right back there. If you, for any reason, came to the point at any time, I would love it if you would take like 10 seconds and on video share with her in one or two words why you came to the point or how you first heard about the point, all right? If you could do that, that would be super awesome. And now with that, have a wonderful week.
1: Actually, I'm...
0: Jay has something too. Yeah,
1: you. I have one more quick thing.
0: Oh, just... All one more quick up, thing, I promise, down. really
1: fast. It's also Emily's fault. Uh, circling back to the rapture question earlier, there is a point leftovers uh, that's out there from previously that, uh, about the rapture and those things. So if you're interested, email Emily at thepoint.com right after you send her your quick video, and she can connect that. So now nah, I'll shut up,
0: promise. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknocks.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting the Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.